coming up on a lively experiment. The gloves come off in the governor's race, playing out on TV and radio airwaves this week. And a federal judge says Rhode Island's truck toll program is unconstitutional. So what comes next? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, attorney and former state representative, Dan Riley. Jim Vincent, president of the Providence branch of the NAACP. And Boston Globe reporter, Amanda Milkovitz. Welcome to this week's Lively, I am Jim Hummel. Well, the campaign for governor took a decidedly nasty turn this week as Ashley Kalis and Dan McKee went after each other personally. She called him a misogynist. He questioned how somebody who's not from Rhode Island can run a state that she barely knows. And uh, we are still five weeks out from the election. Jim, let me begin with you. Um, I don't know if this was inevitable, it seems, in every campaign, but this, this seemed a little more personal than we're used to this week. Well, I think you're right, uh, but I think also uh, the media has, uh, you know, seized on certain things because it sells. I, I think that um, we're in a time where people are getting more personal in terms of the attacks. I see some of the ads, and they're like almost brutal in terms of the uh, the attacks against each other. So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll hear more about issues as opposed to the personal attacks. I'm hopeful that that will happen because it doesn't serve anybody, including the candidates, to sling, sling mud and to get into, you know, personal attacks like that. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, this is just one of those things that happened last week. And going forward, you're not going to see the same kind of personal attacks uh, going forward. And, Dan, we've talked about this on this show mm -hmm. a lot. Consultants drive a lot of this. I hear from some of these spokespeople, it just it sounds like canned lines, kind of like this is what we're going to throw in there. And, and I, I don't know whether you feel that way, too, or at some point, what, at what point does the candidate take control and say, let's get the ship back and, you know, steering right? Well, I think Dan McKee took some control in the of calling uh, Ashley Kalis a seagull manager this week, because I've <laughs> never true. met a consultant who would give true. a candidate that line, because um, I'm not exactly sure what it means. And the word crap. We can say that uh, yes. because the governor did crapping all over So I, I will give him right? credit. I think that's evidence a consultant did not feed him that line. <laughs> right. um, but I think what it's really reflective of is a tightening race. And I think what the consultants are seeing behind the scenes, we haven't seen real public polling since the primary, but what it's showing is there's going to be tightening in the race. That would happen naturally. But the tone and the tenor of negative attacks is going to be driven by what the race is looking like behind the scenes and what the trend lines are looking like. So clearly, the McKee campaign is seeing something in the Kalis campaign. Uh, and likewise, the Kalis campaign, I think, is really starting to hit on some important themes, particularly around the Pawtucket Soccer Stadium, uh, the ILO contract, which, of course, is still under investigation, and they're seeing receptive audience uh, in, the, in the public electorate. And so the McKee campaign is fighting back. And so I think that's, that's what you're seeing, and I don't think that's going to let up in the next five weeks. I agree. I think that we're um, on this roller coaster right now, and we're beginning. Not, it's. I don't think the personal attacks are going to end. I think this is just the beginning. People are looking for what's going to hit with voters. So we have seagulls, seagull managers, crapping, and then we have the issue of Pawtucket versus Pawtucket, and who's really from the inside and who's really from the outside. I mean, those are really distractions from the actual issues. I think both candidates have already decided how they're going to paint each other. Who's the insider? Who's the outsider? WPRI had a very interesting story today talking about uh, where Ashley Kalis 
um, that she's considering her, her home in Newport uh, is a second home with a mortgage rider. And I think that's going to be an issue that we can expect Governor McKee to latch onto. Where does she live? Is she really committed to Rhode Island? Just as she's tackling him for the Tidewater issue. But her response to that was not to say, not to hit it exact, head on, but to say, this is uh, indication that it's a failing campaign. It, it throws it right back on McKee. What about the second mortgage? What about the mortgage and the second home? All of that issue. Yeah, well, I think you know it's going to have to come around to issues at, at some point, and you know the equality uh, coverage, abortion coverage act is going to come up, and obviously uh, Dan McKee is for it, and Ashley Kalis. I'm assuming is against it. So there's going to be issues like that where there's clearly going to be a stand by one or the other. And I think we are going to get some issue differentiation. And even among the mudslinging, and I think maybe you are right, I'm hopeful that it won't be that way, but I think it probably will continue. But when, you know, you start talking about, you know, is Ron DeSantis still your favorite hero? Is it Helena Folks? Or who is it? I mean, I think, you know, you're going to get some more differentiation beyond uh, the uh, personal attacks. The other thing is, though, the debates mm. are going to be coming up. So it's going to have to be one-on-one. -on -one. They're going to have to, depending on the format, so they've set out three debates, and then one's a little bit closer. The whole early voting thing, I'm not sure that that's a big deal. To me, the early voting, most people, did, not, they didn't vote 20 days before the election. They, no. out of convenience, did it maybe a couple of days before. What do you think about this whole deal? We want to have these before the early voting starts. Does that matter at all? Or? Well, I think at least some of them should, and the process should start before the early voting, because the campaigns uh, and, and the state have encouraged or incentivized early voting. They've made it certainly very easy. To the extent voters are going to start voting, I think they should be able to hear from the candidates in a, in a debate. Uh, and certainly the schedule has traditionally been set based on Election Day being really the center of not all but most voting. So I, I think that I think the uh, particularly the Kalos campaign uh, has a valid point there. Um, but I, I agree that I think turnout is going to still be weighted more heavily towards Election Day. We saw that in the primary. Um, I, we, we saw a come down off of the COVID spike in early voting for a lot of reasons. That I How do you feel sense. about early voting? I, I no problem making it easier to vote. I mean, when I was a candidate, I always worked very hard to get, um, or then it really wasn't called early voting, but mail ballots out to people. I had a lot of people in my district who were friendly to me, who were voting for me, but weren't there on election day or wanted an easier way to vote. So it was always about getting out to them. And certainly it wasn't nearly as easy back then as it is now. And, and when you talk to Ashley Kalis, when you talk to Alan Fung, when you talk to our General Assembly candidates, I've yet to meet a Republican uh, running for office in this state who is not working hard to get voters out there early and make sure they know um, that people can vote early. Well, the NAACP Province branch uh, was firmly in support of the Letter Right Vote Act, which the two pillars were early making early voting codified into law, as well as mail ballot making it easier so you don't have to have the two witnesses and the, and the notary. So I strongly, or we, the NAACP Province Branch, strongly support early voting. And I think the impact in terms of whether or not the debates are before or after is minimal. However, I, I would uh, agree that having them before the early voting period would be helpful. But most people that vote early, you know, they know that things can change. They make a conscious decision knowing that. It's not like they, are, they were deceived or somebody made them vote early. So I, I, I don't think this whole thing about, well, they, they're not knowing about what the issues are because they're not voting on election day. I don't think that holds water. Keep, keep in mind, Dan McHugh is a beneficiary of a late surging candidate in Helena Folks who peaked and had a great debate right before the primary day. So his campaign is not pushing for debates earlier 
because he's worried about the same issue happening again. I mean, we can get lost in the early voting and doing it before people are voting. This is why the McKee campaign doesn't want to do it. He's the incumbent. He wants to control the narrative as best possible. He knows with an insurgent outsider running against him, the single biggest risk is having a debate go well for his opponent. And if that happens closer to Election Day, they can bank on more votes coming in beforehand uh, that have already been cast and you don't have to worry about it changing minds. So that's where they're pushing the schedule as far out as possible. And we all know the reality of what you say on the campaign trail and governing are two different things. I love how Ashley Kellis and even McKee to a certain extent all do this. The reality is in Rhode Island, it's what Speaker Sakarchi wants, right? And the Senate president. So you hear about let's do this and reforming the education Mm -hmm. and all of that. And I wonder for her, this is my thought about if she does get elected governor, and, you know, that's a big if, we don't know now, then how do you deal with the legislature? Because Don Kachiri banged his head against the wall for a number of years. He did get some stuff done. Link Ahmed, when you're a Republican in that seat, it's very difficult. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think Governor McKee, you know, my personal opinion is that he's more of an, he's an easier target because he has a track record. He has a history, for better or worse. It's something to look at. Ashley Kalis is still really an unknown. I mean, she just moved to the state this year. Um, and she voted elsewhere two years ago. We don't know who she is, who her team really is, and that's something that I think voters are really trying to find out. That's where the debates are going to be very important. And if she does make it to become governor, you know, I'm wondering how much of an issue the abortion rights is going to be. And if the Republicans regain power in Congress, if they are able to succeed in having a nationwide uh, abortion ban, what happens to Rhode Island? Yeah, and she went out of her way yesterday. She was on the radio with Tara Granahan saying, look, I'm personally pro-life, but mm-hmm. this is the law in Rhode Island. I wouldn't move to change it. But I wonder, Dan, whether you think the national discussion going on about abortion filters to Rhode Island or whether that's something that is not going to factor in. Well, as far as the governor's race is concerned, I don't think it really matters. There's nothing there right now. Mm. Right. So the law of of the land in Rhode Island is that abortion for all nine months of pregnancy for any reason is 100% legal, no questions asked. If a national ban were to take effect, and I think that's a real if, um, the governor wouldn't have any power over that if we're talking about a federal law. If if, if Ashley Kalis is successful in her run, um, she said she wouldn't overturn that that law, but it would be a, a monumental lift because it would, of course, require the assent of the legislature. So there's really two separate issues. If people are criticizing her for her position on the state law, the state law is already the law. If they're concerned about her uh, being governor and federal law changing, well, there's a lot of federal laws that can change, and the governor has no power over that. How big an issue is it? Well, you know, I'm not going to say it's a huge issue or a small issue. I think it's an issue. And I think that this whole thing about Medicaid and also state workers in terms of the fact that uh, Dan McKee is for all women having access and uh, Ashley Kalis uh, seems not to have uh, the uh, Equality Coverage Act as something that she would support. I think that could be an issue with a lot of different groups. Once that starts becoming more talked about and you can see a clear difference in this state, I think it's going to be a factor uh, in terms of the, in terms of the, that uh, the election. I mean, this is an issue that always fires up a relatively small percentage of the electorate. They're all voters. Uh, they vote on the pro-life and the pro-choice side. This is not the first election uh, that abortions come up. It is the first post-Obs election, but I don't think you see it in the polling that has been released that there is such a surge in the number of people who are voting with this as their number one issue. Where does and, that fit in? And I would see this beating cost of living or inflation. Mm, I don't know. 
<laughs> Honestly, I, 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 that, I would be shocked if abortion yeah. is the number one issue amongst the majority of the electorate and that beats inflation and energy prices. I think that is an issue that's being discussed by pretty much everyone in the electorate at this point. This is what I, this is what I'm yeah. hearing on the ground is yeah. abortion is a major issue. I, I don't think that, you know, women had expected that um, that uh, Roe v. Wade would be overturned. And even though it is the law in Rhode Island, I think people are feeling really vulnerable. I mean, I agree with Jim. I think it's I think it's going to be out there. It's not just this is the law of the land, but if things change federally, would Governor Kalis do anything to ensure that the rights are protected? Final thought I on that? Yeah, I just think that you look at nationally, uh, there's a surge in terms of the Democrats, in terms of the, the primary, and a lot of that is because of suburban women, suburban white women who are Republican. They don't like this whole idea of, uh, of the abortion uh, issue uh, changing by the Supreme Court. And, and I think, you know, uh, it might not show up in polling because a lot of people don't show up in polling, especially people in my community don't show up in polling. It could be a big surprise on Election Day. You know, the other issue that mm. Governor McKee's had to walk back some things, the $3,000 vaccination bonus. The latest is the department director increases. Some people going up $40,000. Uh, my personal feeling is it makes sense to, to attract good people. You have to pay them properly. This is why, you know, it's been hard to get DCYF for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons and all of that. I wonder, and then he had to walk it back saying, well, we're going we're gonna to kind of do an incremental. It, it's another rollout. It, it, does that affect people's view of the governor in terms of making a decisive you know, decision and then having to roll it back? Or do people get that issue, do you think? Well, I think the big surprise was that uh, they come out and say, well, I didn't realize that this was the law. I that, didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. How did, how did you not know that? I, I think you, he can argue, people can argue whether or not the raises are appropriate. And I agree with you with GCYF, that has been a real issue. They brought that up multiple times and why it's hard to attract people. However, you would think they would have explored already, make sure that they could do what they want to do, and then have the argument about whether this is necessary right now. Yeah, it's a little bumpy, the rollout. Yeah. I, I don't know who in the governor's office said it was a good idea to release this information and make this a story when they we, did. Why didn't they do this November 10th? Yeah, right? November 9th, <laughs> November 10th. Right? This is, is the, the legislature that issue. called it? You, you can make, Isn't it the legislature that dictates? I'm sorry. No, you notify the legislature. You have to notify the legislature in writing, and they have the ability to But it also it may have been, it. look, in the budget cycle as they're getting ready, it's just the budget, budget just doesn't ma magically pop out. And, that, they, that this is the groundwork laying up to it. But wouldn't you have said, hey, can we talk about something else until after the election? You know, the budget submission process from now until January, if it's, if it's a, a governor already in office, is a relatively internal process. There's really nothing you have to do publicly in a, an outward-facing manner until the governor publicly releases the budget. If agencies are internally discussing the need to have these raises, this is something someone in the governor's office, if they were wise, would say, let's have this conversation later in November, and we'll make the case to the legislature in, in the uh, in the spring. And we'll have plenty of time. The fact that they don't do that simple decision-making process calls into question, for me at least, and I think for a lot of people, their ability to execute, which is, seems to always be the issue at the McKee administration. Well, I, you know, I, I agree that, you know, it, it probably would have been better on November 9th or November 10th, but the issue it still remains that people have to, you know, have competitive salaries in order to attract uh, 
the people that you want. I was on the DCYF search committee, and I know how hard it was mm. to get somebody given the salary that it is. I mean, should people be getting $60,000 raises? I guess not, because I think the, the other states, maybe it, should, it requires maybe a 20000 bump up for some of these people. So I think it's within the margins in terms of what we're talking about. Uh, I think timing is everything. So, yeah, I think uh, something like this probably would have been better to be discussed. Well, McKee's trying to make up for decades of maybe not keeping competitive on and, the and, and, right? and that's fine, but the electorate in terms of right now, in terms of raises for anybody, I don't think there's any appetite, to, uh, even if it's justifi justifiable, mm -hmm. to have raises. I mean, I, I don't think they would say it's not justifiable, but, you know, right now, we're, 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 the public is suffering in terms of inflation and these other things. It, it just is not something that politically, I think, would have been a, a good uh, thing uh, to not have after the election. Big issue that came out last week. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't talk about it because we had the college uh, newspaper editors on, but the big news last week was the truck tolls. I've been dying to talk to you about this, not <laughs> only as a legislator, but as an attorney. We asked and asked and asked, mm -hmm. where's the legal opinion? Right. Ramondo was dead. We've, we're on rock-solid ground, and apparently Judge Smith decided otherwise. And we knew all along they weren't. So when I was in the legislature, we passed the truck toll bill. And I, along with several of my colleagues, Blake Flippy at the time, who wasn't yet minority leader, we were going through all the documents. We said, where's this legal opinion that says this is legal? We went through the case law. We did the research ourselves. And we said, you have three principal weaknesses here, as we see it, in how this law is put together. And the Department of Transportation, the governor's office, said we were crazy. We had no idea what we were talking about. We're completely wrong. When you read Judge Smith's opinion, we were 100% vindicated. We didn't want to be. We wanted the law to be changed at the time so it would withstand scrutiny and we wouldn't have spent millions of dollars on a system that has to be turned off. But here we are. And it was all completely avoidable had they taken the more prudent track and not tried to create such a protectionist scheme, which is what it was. They wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. They wanted tolls, but they wanted to make sure no protected interest group had to pay them. And so the way they wrote it was unconstitutional. And I wonder, you know, the, the, the underline has been, oh, now that's going to be the creep towards having cars. Nobody, the McKee administration is actually doing a good Heisman saying, oh, we'll talk to you about this down the week. You haven't decided yet, right? Who's ever going to say, yeah, we want to do cars? But I, I just, I'm baffled by all the resources went into this, and now we understand they can't do it. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, you brought up a great point. It's that We'd requested the legal analysis. The Raimondo administration said, don't worry, we can definitely do it. And Judge Smith, didn't he originally dismiss the case as well? That yeah. was a technical. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah, a, on procedural grounds. Okay. Yeah. It was a standing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. who had standing to, to bring the case. And uh, we never really reached the amount that I think that they, they thought we were going to reach. It wasn't supposed to be like $45 million and it turned out to be $40 million. But, but now what? Now, the General Assembly, you know, the leaders are right now saying, don't worry, we're not going to creep into, now we're going to just toll cars. Yeah, but, but then do they throw good money after bad? If it's, I mean, right. if, are they going to appeal? Now I what? would love to see somebody question Gina Raimondo. She's been, I mean, not that the Commerce Secretary is going to want to weigh in on this, but somebody get a microphone in her face and say, what, what's the deal? Well, and not, not to, uh, to justify the legal thinking at the time, but, you know, the bridges in Rhode Island are the worst in the country at the time. And we were in a crisis. This is before the infrastructure bill was passed, all right, which may help save the gap in terms of what's going to have to be filled that we're not doing it anymore. And I think they raised maybe $100 million. And in terms of bridge coverage, I think when they started, there was like a percentage of 74%, and the goal was 90%. Well, now they're at 83 percent. So there, there was some movement in terms of fixing the bridges in Rhode Island. Maybe there should have been more thinking in terms of the legality of it. But, you know, in terms of it, us being in a crisis, uh, I, you know, bridges are now 
better than they were at, let's say, during the No, the no crisis. argument about that, Jim, but the issue, and Dan, you, you heard that discussion on the floor, it was going to be 10% of the budget. It's not like road works. It was going to make up the last 10%. It's not like there was no other money involved, so we spent all this money to go after that last 10%. No, that's right. And it, 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 we didn't issue bonds ba ba uh, backed by the tolls, which is important because I think the state recognized their weakness there. And then we'd really be in a tight situation right now. But what we did do was issue other debt and go out and spend a lot of money with this cash representing a pretty significant portion of how we were going to pay for it. So we still have a big hole we have to fill. The cost of the gantries notwithstanding, if they turn out to be a c complete waste or they have to be repurposed somehow, we still have money we are spending today that is backed in part by this revenue that was supposed to go to it, but $40 million a year. And, and it has been going up, not as aggressively as they thought it would, but it really is going to represent in their minds you know, an increasing share of our transportation spending, and we're not going to be able to use it now. Yeah. Amanda, you've been doing some great work on uh, North Kingstown. It is the we were talking off camera before. Dan said, "Were we talking about this a year ago?" <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be talking about this a year from now. But if you're a parent, and so set the table on the latest of what you've been doing. If you're a parent in North Kingstown or any community, we all pay taxes. We hope that the school committee and the administrators are going to do their job, and they've just, they've so fallen down on the job. Down. Right. I mean, not to depress you, I don't think North Kingstown is alone in this. I think North Kingstown just happens to be the place that we're looking that at. That depresses me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but because, so I, I think these these um, stories are hitting so strongly is because people can relate, everyone can relate to a creepy teacher in their past. I know I can. So my latest story was on middle school boys who took it upon themselves. They didn't like how uh, their teacher was behaving around the girls. They didn't like how he was treating them either. But the, he was very creepy. They thought he was very creepy with the girls. He was kind of flirtatious. He would have one of them take off her shoes and socks and wiggle her toes for him, get up and dance for me, and just, so they started, they're on Discord because they're gamers, so they created their own little file, they called it the, the, the pedo database, and named it after the teacher, and for an entire year, off and on, eight boys contributed to things that they saw him do, not because they thought it would ever end up in the hands of the authorities, but it did but just because nobody was listening to them. And that's been the common theme in North Kingstown. Kids have come forward, parents have come forward over the years and told principals and superintendents, hey, there's a problem with this teacher. There's a problem with this coach, Aaron Thomas, who's since been charged with two felonies. Um, there's a problem with uh, a coach at the high school who is now um, on administrative leave. There's also a problem with this, this coach and teacher at Davisville Middle School who is also administrative leave. And now it's all coming back. Now they're finally listening because once it opened up, other kids are coming What's forward. What's the legal exposure for this, the, the uh, town and the school department? Oh, that remains to be seen. I mean, right now uh, we have, you know, Title IX investigation. We have um, multiple internal investigations that are going on. I mean, there's criminal charges, of course, against Aaron Thomas. Um, it, it, lawyer uh, Timothy Conlin, who's gone after the diocese, is representing multiple uh, former and current students and their families with complaints against the school system. Counselor, what's the legal exposure of the... Oh, I, I mean, I think it's going to be pretty significant beyond their criminal liabilities. Uh, certainly, if, uh, I think the town's going to face some significant financial exposure here, and I think other communities are too. What I fear, and I agree with, is that the Globe and other outlets are going to now find uh, story after story in other communities, and I think the next shoe to drop, I would, I would guess, um, is that 
you're going to start to see the use of confidential settlements uh, th with school committees in towns, uh, not just in... But it I can't don't be confidential if they're using taxpayer money. Uh, well, right, but I think now what's going to happen is that um, you're going to start putting a spotlight on those things. So people who exited the school district, different school districts under questionable circumstances in the past, they may not have written down exactly why, knowing it's discoverable, um, then you're going to start to see people expose uh, patterns of conduct in other communities oh, where things like this have happened. Elected officials are largely indemnified unless you go after them personally. Mm -hmm. What? And I know this may not be your area of expertise, but what about a teacher or an administrator? Are, because they're a public official, does that give them some type of insulation or not? Well, it'll certainly be, if you try to go after one of them individually, their defense certainly will start with that the town has to indemnify them and then, you know, towns or school districts may take certain actions depending on the scope of their employment and, you know, the facts of that case to say, no, actually, your indemnification doesn't count here, you're on your own. These types of things are litigated all the time uh, because if someone's paying, you always want to get them out in front. Um, at the end of the day, though, I think what's going to happen, at least if it happens like it is in North Kingstown, is where you show the town and town authorities starting to be culpable, at least in cases where they knew of information and didn't do anything. I think their lawyers are going to advise them that they're going to be financially settling in some of these cases as well. Well, first, uh, congratulations, Amanda, for a great story. Uh, it's really needed. Uh, you know, you expose something that was reprehensible. Uh, kudos to the kids with the pedal uh, database. Uh, and shame in terms of all those administrators that look the other way. And I just feel that, um, you know, the striking thing in your story to me was the fact that these alleged pedophiles move on average three times before they finally met, mm. meet mm -hmm. justice. That's a good point. Three times. So in other words, you know, they might move from North Kingston to another town and then another town, and then only at the third town will they finally be brought to justice, and that should be alarming to everybody. Well, that was the issue with Aaron Thomas. He went Aaron to that parochial uh, school in South County, right? So, yep, so it yep. ain't over until yeah. it's over. Yeah. Right, right. And in, in the case of the Davisville uh, middle school teacher, mm -hmm. he was prevented from coaching in North Kingstown because of the complaints, but he went to two other school districts nearby, and there were complaints in another school exactly. district. Exactly. All right. We'll continue to follow your stories. Let's do uh, outrages and or kudos. Mr. Riley, what do you have this week? The PUC rate increase approval for 47% increase in electricity rates uh, in this coming year, uh, I think, and that's first outrage, the sub-outrage to that are all the state legislators who vote for the policies that undergird the uh, higher and increasing rates with all the mandatory subsidies that Rhode Island Energy has to do towards renewables and other other sources of energy that's driving the cost of power up, but then claiming that these increases are horrible. The increases are horrible and we shouldn't be backing public policies right now that are forcing our costs to go higher when we do not have the supply built to backfill them. Just quickly, what could the PUC have done in your mind? What do you think? I think the PUC should work to pull back regulations that drive the need for a lot of those increases so Rhode Island Energy faces less pressure when there are macro factors at play like the world economy and global energy prices spiking. All right, thanks. Amanda, what do you have? Amanda, uh, outrage or kudos? <laughs> oh, I'm going to give a kudos. I'm going to give a kudos to librarians, those soft-spoken people with spines <laughs> of steel. We're just coming off of Banned Books Week uh, where I learned that nationally the number of challenges and book bannings are at the all-time high, according to the American Library Association. Uh, in Rhode Island, we've also had issues of multiple books being challenged and sometimes by groups that are organized specifically to go after them. Not necessarily parents who are concerned about a book, but 
but parents who are coming into a different district and saying this book needs to be banned. So librarians are responding by coming up with uh, policies that say if you want to if you want to ban a book from everybody, you want to put it up the shelves, prove that you read it. You get the last minute, Mr. Vincent. Okay, it was going to be an uh, outrage about Governor DeSantis and his outrageous, if not illegal and immoral behavior in terms of Venezuelan immigrants dropping them off in Martha's Vineyard. But I'm going to do a kudo, uh, just to lighten it up a little bit. On Friday, October 7th, uh, everybody here is invited to the NAACP Providence Branch Annual Freedom Fund Awards Gala. We're going to have a great time at the Providence Marriott Orms. Five great uh, award winners, uh, Dr. Sharon, Colonel, Colonel Sharon Harmon, first black Colonel in Rhode Island uh, history, uh, guard history, Regina Clement, Susan Pyrus, Terrell Osborne, Cedric Huntley. And the keynote speaker, drum roll, please, Congressman Ayanna Presley. So I got to make sure, Dan, you get a good seat. <laughs> You'll be in the front, front row. row. Front row. Right. <laughs> okay, folks, that is all the time we have. We appreciate your spending uh, this week with us. Dan and Jim and Amanda, thank you. Great to have you back. Folks, if you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, check out our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and we archive all of our shows at ripbs.org lively. It is going to be a wild five weeks to Election Day. We hope you join us for all the analysis and come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.